Welcome back to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast where each week we discuss what serial mascots we could physically take on in a fight. Just kidding. This is Ben and Bran see a movie. He's Ben. I'm Bran. This is... And this is Ben and Bran. Ben and Bran see a movie. See a movie. And we're still uh, we're still a little off this week because I'm looking at you, Branson, currently from about ten feet away, maybe. Yes. On a computer, or sorry, on a TV screen, a thirty-two yes. inch TV screen that's kind of covered by lights, and so I only even, see about even, half of you right now. Even when we're uh, <laughs> even when we're doing it over Zoom, uh, you're still socially distanced from me. I am. <laughs> Yeah, uh, things are things are mostly okay, at least on my end. But um, you know, I, we're we're taking an extra week just to, you know, let Omicron sort of do its thing, and then hopefully it'll be out of our hair shortly, uh, and we'll be back in person because I think we gel better in person. Agreed. Because the best part is right now you are so off audio sync on my screen. Oh crap! <laughs> yeah, I can like. I can't even like watch you fully talk right now because it's so off. So yes, this is we're back uh, this week, uh, albeit separate, but you know we're still we're still together in spirit, or you know yeah. those kind of those kind of fruity things. Not fruity, you know what I'm trying to say. Uh, frilly things that they used to say at the beginning of this whole crap show. Uh, this week we are talking about a much different movie than we talked about last week. I would say, yet still sort of falls into the comedy uh, sort of net that we've cast this month. Yeah, a, a very wide net that covers, I think, the four corners of comedy uh, yeah. in a way. Uh, and that's an interesting about, question yeah. when we get mm -hmm. into it. It's like, is this movie a comedy? Because I don't know. I really don't know if I would consider yeah. this movie a comedy straight up. But yeah, you're right. It's in it's our more it's more it's more drama forward. Yeah, in our definition, I guess for comedy for this month, we're saying it's a comedy, but realistically, I don't know if I would categorize this as a comedy. Yeah, this isn't one of the more comedic, um, comedy centric Wes Anderson films. But with that being said, this is the Wes Anderson film. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums, or the, the Royal Tenenbaums. The Royal Tenenbaums, which is Wes Anderson's third uh, directorial feature. This one yes. comes out in 2001. Before it, he has Bottle Rocket and Rushmore that kind of establish him on the mark. This is very much the movie that makes him kind of Wes Anderson to the general public of moviegoers. Mm -hmm. Like, this is really the movie that, like, it clicks and the cast he gets to have this kind of insane ensemble featuring a lot of big performers where before you know he had you know he was getting murray in those movies i think he has owen and luke wilson mm -hmm. uh he has like you know he has actors in them this is the one where it's like this is an all-star ensemble of who's who which kind of becomes the trademark of anderson's career yes and especially with uh certain certain individuals that appear quite often like you said uh the wilson brothers and the wilson brothers bill murray um, who i believe yeah, has murray. been in every anderson I don't know film if, i don't know if I, everyone i i know he's in uh life I, aquatic in, with steve zissou yeah i think he's been in all he's of been them. in a he's maybe been a, minus isles amount. of dogs I think yeah, Isle I'm not of sure Dogs, if he was I don't remember if he's in that. In every other one, though, I'm almost positive he appears. 
Yes. So, so I mean, that's, I think, nine films. So at the very least, eight of them starring Bill Murray or some sort of supporting role from mm-hmm. Murray with possibly nine of them. I Like I said, I don't remember Isle of Dogs because they're all voices. He might have a cameo role now thinking about it. He's definitely yeah. in Fantastic Mr. Fox as a voice. Yes. I recall yeah. that very clearly. I but, um a, a good friend of mine uh, who actually commented on our Instagram post at the Beniverse uh, for him and at Bind Media for me, uh, a good friend of mine, Andrew, posted on our post about uh, this film, Royal Tenenbaums, and he said that it was his favorite movie of all time. Uh, and uh, he is a huge, huge Wes Anderson fan. Uh, he's done his own personal rankings uh, on his movie blog, uh, The Beauty and the Beard. Uh, he's done rankings of Wes Anderson films, uh, and he really likes them. So in light of that whole explanation, uh, we want to have him on in the future. And I think, Ben, this is mm-hmm. kind of the perfect week for us to announce it. put out a little teaser for the next sort of bracket thing we're doing. Uh, last, yes. last year, we did Cage Off, which is where we put a bunch of Nicolas Cage movies into the ring and watched them duke it out in a uh, Super Smash Brothers style, you know, <laughs> all against all. And we had Keith Phipps on as our guest, which was which was a really neat um, final episode of the Cage Off. And this year, our sort of bracket theme is going to be Ben. Yeah, I'll, I'll I won't say it. I will let our artists say it here. We got the Wild Wild West. <laughs> yes, that's what we're calling it. It is. <laughs> it is going to be. Can't play it much longer. <laughs> yeah, I don't but know. But I'm trying how to much. get to the wild, wild west part of it. Okay, come on, <laughs> speed it up. It's okay. No. It's going to be. It's wild, there wild it is. west. The <laughs> wild, 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 wild west. west. Yes, we and are doing the wild west showdown, and it's going to be a big old bracket of I think all of Wes Anderson's films. Yes, and this is sort of the first Nicholas one that we're doing Cage, as a trailer. Mm-hmm. Where there's about a hundred films and about, let's be generous, let's say about 30 of them are unwatchable. <laughs> this is actually, I believe, nine to ten films with all of them being watchable movies. Yeah. Like, even if some of them I'm not the biggest fan or don't think are very good, they're still watchable. Right. Uh, so we're going to do that. So uh, unlike last year where we kind of did it in the summer, we're going to kick it off with March Madness this year. Assuming March Madness still happens, which, of course, with the world kind of being the way it is, assuming that something's going to happen in March is kind of a big leap on our part. (laughs) But we are going with the assumption that we are going to be kicking it off in March in uh, along with March Madness going on for the NCAA might not happen. NCAA might not happen. If you're not interested in the basketball bracket, you can be interested in our Wes Anderson movie bracket. Exactly. So there you go. we're going to be doing that. I know we are talking about having guests on, not just where we did last time where Keith was probably, oh, I think was the only guest I believe we had on. Yeah, yeah he was the only one for like the finale of Cage Off. Yeah. This time we'll probably be having guests a little bit more throughout where where there's going to be weeks where it is just going to be Branson and I but we will probably have one or two guests on 
during the actual episodes throughout the weeks. And then same thing as last year, I have a special guest that will be coming on for the very end of Wild Wild West, which I need to talk to you about after the year because I haven't told you about that. Ho, ho, but yeah, ho. you said, yeah, you mentioned, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Is it Andrew? Yes, Andrew. Andrew. Andrew the, uh... will be joining us. Uh, in theory, Andrew should be joining us. He will be one of the guys that will probably pop on throughout. Mm-hmm. We'll probably have a few others who just either that's a Anderson film that connects with them. That's when they start writing, whatever the scenario ends. And this year is going to look a little bit different than Wild Wild, or sorry, Wild Wild West is going to look a little different than Cage Off did last year. Uh, we're going to see how that goes. We might have, you know, last year with there being 16, maybe we're going to try this year. Now that we have a little bit more of a social media presence, I want to at least try maybe the floating the idea of a 32 bracket. And then letting the fans, yeah, and letting the fans vote for the final sixteen. So the first round is done by everybody, and then how are we, we going to have thirty? An, how are we going to have thirty-two? It would West be characters. Anderson. We'd have to do characters, right? Oh, we wouldn't, be doing, we wouldn't be doing movies. We'd have to be doing best West Anderson characters or whatever it is. I oh think my would be the gosh! Theory. So that's kind crazy. of that's <laughs> we're kind still of working out that, the logistics. Yeah, I didn't realize that was logistics. where you were going. We would have had the logistics a little bit more planned out during our meeting for the month. We haven't had that meeting now because of COVID. Yeah. Yeah, but we will get to that meeting eventually, so we will have some of those ideas fleshed out. But yeah, that's kind of the general, I think, idea that we're I'm at least trying to incorporate for Wild Wild West. Mm-hmm. So a few more guests. Uh, unlike last time, I know this time Branson and I have talked about doing, what if we tried doing one singular like episode per movie and just kind of pre-recording a few. That way we can kind of put out one or two a week to kind of get it through the March Madness flow. One, so it spaces out for us. Two, so the discussions are a little bit thorough. And three, honestly, so we don't go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> the crazy I think it part would... was real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I think this would affect our psyches a little bit less. Than are Cage you, Off did. Are you crazy? Because, I think this one would affect our psyche more. Really? Well, think about what Wes Anderson is, and we'll talk about it more in this episode. Yeah. But there's a very it particular would affect us style. in a in a different way for sure. It's kind of you. It's going to kind of start feeling not repetitive, but it is going to start feeling like we're going to see something in a very different way, like symmetrical. We're going to be thinking in a quite different way. Where Nick Cage, we still least explored genres. Wes Anderson himself is almost the genre. Yeah, yeah. That's that's going to be the challenge. He makes doing Wes the Anderson Wild films. Wild so yeah. we're spacing it out to kind of, like I said, make it easier on all of us. Mm-hmm. Make it easier on getting guests on. And like I said, just, I think, putting out a better product overall. Not saying yeah. Nicolas Cage, Cage Off wasn't a great product. It was an amazing product. But it took a lot out of us on that one month. Yeah. Oh my. The the uh, the week with vampires kiss was like that was exhausting. Well, not even that, but I mean, like that was an exhausting <laughs> week, of course. But like The Rock and Con Air, I think were both like two and a half hour films. Yeah. Oh. Which meant we yeah, were yeah, watching yeah. movies for like five hours a week when we typically only watch for about an hour and a half to two and a half hours each week. Right. Yeah. We were basically watching the. Uh, <laughs> we were watching the the Jackson cut of 
Lord of the Rings pretty much every week. Exactly. We were. It was a lot. But anyway, so that's kind of the tease for what will be coming soon. We'll be back in person, hopefully next week for our mm-hmm. one year anniversary. Which I'm we're going to will saddles. Omicron out of existence. Yeah. The question now is, do I have to quarantine? We'll be finding that answer probably by Friday well, when this episode tune in drops. Next week. We will, yeah, we will determine if I am quarantined or not. So that's an exciting tease. Uh, you guys can put your you can put your bets in on FanDuel. FanDuel. Yeah, I was gonna say, can you please make a poll on uh, the Into the Veniverse uh, story, like your Instagram story? Be like, is Ben positive for COVID? Yes yeah, or we'll no? See. <laughs> but. Yeah, hopefully I'm not. Hopefully February goes pretty smoothly because I know we we have a lot. We have President's Week. We have Valentine's Day. I know we're trying to tie in movies to that, so we'll tease that at the end of next week's show. But anyway, that's kind of just the brief summation of what is going on right now. That's what just we do. Just on this show and everything. And yep. with that said, make sure, because we always forget to say this, make sure... If you're listening, you're already still listening. You haven't done it yet. Follow us on whatever <laughs> uh, podcast form you're listening to. Uh, follow us on my YouTube channel, The Beniverse. Follow us on Instagram. Follow, like, comment, do all that stuff. Give us I, a nice rating if you like on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. Spotify, Apple Podcast, do it all. It helps us all. So we thank you guys for the amount of growth that we've had. The fact, Branson, I forgot to tell you this. My Don't Look Up review just hit, I believe, 650 views as of today. Wow. Which is just insane to me. And Yo. the response is still negative. <laughs> People really hate your input on People, Don't Look Up. I cannot wait because I'm releasing, I believe, later this week when you listen to this. Or maybe it will be released the day you listen to it. I'm still determining because I have to edit a ton. I did a brief review of every film that I saw in 2021, which is I saw 80 movies that came out in the year 2021. And I did about a minute review for each movie. Oh my goodness. I'm still editing it. My hope is that it will be out. If not Friday, then probably Monday of this upcoming week. So that would be the 24th, I think. That's a lot of movies to watch. It's a lot of movies. And I watched <laughs> and to I review. Think, I think I watched 50 of them between November to January. Mm-hmm. And that was so, just movies that came out in 2021. In 2021. Wow. There's basically not a huge movie that I really missed this year, which wow. was exhausting. But anyway, let's get into our talk on the Royal Tenenbaums. Let's do it. So you, uh, you're you dropping our, our film historian. I'm doing historian the film historian this week. And feel free to jump in whenever you have anything okay. on it. But I'll mention kind of the big picture ideas for the Royal Tenenbaum. So like I said, this was his third directorial feature following Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, which were critical successes of the 90s and had a little bit of a cult following And people knew who he was on the scale of an indie director, but he still hadn't hit quite the mainstream that he would be hitting in 2001 with the Royal Tenenbaums. This film is comes out at a really interesting time in American history because this premieres at the New York Film Festival on October 5th, 2001, which means it follows a little less than a month right after 9-11 in New York. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's actually a really interesting thing because this movie, I think it hits a little bit of that subconscious like anxiety and fear that comes of the post 9-11 world. It's weird that a movie exists. A movie can t- take such a different connotation even though it was made pre 9-11, but it's viewed in a completely different way post 9-11. And yeah, I think yeah, you sort of you sort of draw the the uh I guess ad hoc sort of connections um because you can really after something as traumatic as 9/11 you can you can use that to relate to sort of the traumatic things that some of the characters in this film go through yeah, especially and, the kids. Exactly. And not only that, it also hits on this weird thing where it's the first time a movie-going audience is really going to a movie together post-9-11, and now they all have this shared common experience, which there's very few events in human history, I would say, since it really the invention of cinema that really have connected people quite that way, where like you'll always remember where 9-11 was, and everyone who went to see the Royal Tenenbaums had an understanding and kind of that weight of what a 9-11 attack was like. I mean, yeah. the only other ones that you could really put on that is probably Pearl Harbor and the Kennedy assassination. And right. when we landed on the moon, like those are really, those are kind of like, like the, the tentpole moment moments of, of American where everybody history. kind of remembers maybe the challenger when MLK's assassinated Robert Kennedy. Oh, stuff yeah, like that, sure. where we all just kind of like everyone who was alive from that moment kind of remembers that so when Merle Tenenbaums comes out in October in the film festival gets critical acclaim comes out December 14th which means this film comes out basically three months post 9-11 and it becomes a big critical success it had a budget of 21 million dollars which for reference that is 33 million dollars in today's currency and for other reference French Dispatch, which is the most recent Wes Anderson film, has a budget of $25 million, as did The Grand Budapest Hotel, which are two of his biggest films. Mm-hmm. His highest budget for a film is Fantastic Mr. Beast. Sorry, Fantastic Mr. Fox <laughs> for oh, $40 million. Yeah, that's a terrible crossover. Actually, I'd kind of <laughs> like to see a Wes Anderson, J.K. Rowling adaptation. That'd be interesting. There's something interesting sure. there. But yeah, Fantastic Mr. Fox has a budget of $40 million. So this one has kind of this big budget. And it's really interesting because also this is kind of the last time we start seeing studios being so willing to give this type of money to a director to make kind of his like image. Like, and especially where Anderson is in his career. Like he's still a young, kind of up and coming unknown director. Yeah, I, like, this is his third movie again. Yeah. Yeah, so he's he, not like the level of like Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, any of these guys kind of coming out of the 90s. You know, Sodenberg makes Ocean's mm-hmm. Eleven the same year that uh, Anderson makes this movie, Royal Tenenbaums. Right. But, so he, doesn't, on- he doesn't have the sort of studio pull or like the exec pull that, uh, you know, like a George Lucas has or like a Spielberg has or some of those directors that you mentioned, like Tarantino, where yeah, he... They he don't, doesn't even have it. They don't have the amount of success yet that would be like, yeah, I here's here's however much money you need 
go make whatever you want to make. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a director now that would that would be like a good comparison of like, this is their movie. And this is the type of budget you then give them to in a film that isn't, I guess, really considered like something universal. Like, because I thought I've of Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. Taika. We talked about but, Taika a lot. No, but Taika's feel- different because he makes a franchise movie with Thor Ragnarok. Oh, yeah, that's true. And yeah, then okay, he gets yeah, to do true. the Prash Passion Project with Jojo Rabbit. Very true. Like, I've, I was thinking of Denis Villeneuve real quick because, you know, he gets to do Prisoners, Sicario, and then he gets to make Arrival, which I think is around a $45 million budget. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, those were, I think, and bigger then he gets movies Dune. than Anderson does. Yeah, then he gets Dude and Blaine Rudder. But, like, this oh, would Oh, yeah, be, that's right. Who would this be in a comparison? This would kind of be like if you took the director who did... Gosh, I'm even having trouble thinking of like what a good comparison would be. This would be like taking a director like Chloe Zhao, who did uh, The Writer, then Nomadland. But instead of making The Eternals right next, this would be like if she took another movie that had kind of like a $60 million budget in it after she had made two small indie films, even though one of them wins the Oscar for Best Picture in Nomadland and the writer like she just gets to Wes Anderson in this gets to just jump into a film that has a pretty significant budget behind it yeah I would say I would say that Wes is a particularly lucky director in that be in that in that sense because that doesn't happen often it's really hard to to get a movie made let alone that that you really want it to be made that way yeah, let alone and, you know however many movies he's made now in the in double digits not only does this film have the budget it has it also is notorious for having 250 practical sets being used some of them only being used for like a few seconds on screen like that's the airplane incredible. clash in this movie that's a real set that they filmed on like that's, that's pretty like wild to have a film that has 250 sets practical sets on location shooting this house is all real none of it's a practical thing you had not only that you had the fact that you have this insane ensemble which features royal tenenbaum who is the father figure Mm. played by gene hackman Hackman. one of his last roles before he retires you also have Angelica Houston playing his ex-wife, Danny Glover, Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, Gwyneth Paltrow, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Leah Shepard, and Alec Baldwin narrating. Yeah. Like that's a insane cast. That's a yeah, that's a that's a crazy cast that has like such an insane talent and I mean, at this point, so many of them are like upper echelon of actors and actresses. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you look back at that, the most the person who's probably the least famous out of that crew is Luke Wilson, who's a pretty famous, well-known actor Mm -hmm. who's had a lot of big comedies since Royal Tenenbaums. But anyway, going on to that, because we kind of need to move on from the uh, film historian. Yeah, it, let's get into this. 
Well, let me say this one last fact because I also think okay, this is it. pretty opening. On its opening weekend in limited release, it grossed $276,000, which is kind of a low number, except that it did that while only playing in five theaters. Whoa. That means each theater, it was averaging about $55,000. Wow. That's, that's an impressive. Crazy. That's an impressive amount for that for five yeah, that's theaters. Like an, wow, that's a crazy number for a limited release, which of course then allows it to go a lot more uh, right. wide release when it comes out because there's proof that there is a success and a buzz for this movie, which of course it then goes on to grow seventy million and goes on to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, written written by Wes Anderson and. Owen Wilson. This isn't just a Wes Anderson written movie. This is Owen Wilson's featured on it. Yes. It ends up losing that same year. Nominated with it is also, and I thought this was a pretty crazy lineup too. It loses to Gosford Park, which is kind of an indie black comedy. I believe it's a British comedy that ends up being the inspiration, I believe, for Downton Abbey. But it also is nominated along with Amelie, Memento, and Monsters Ball, which is kind of three big hitters of the 2001. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of crazy. And with that all said, let's kind of just get into hills. what. Yeah. Like, shall we take a stand on my, our hills? Yeah. At least for my stand, I think my hill relates very closely to who Wes Anderson is as a director. Mm-hmm. In that fact that I think what works so well about this movie is it's Anderson knowing exactly the movie he wants to make, and he casts the actors playing to their strength. I think that's a really impressive thing Anderson does, where he gets the actors, and he doesn't ask like these things that they're not known for in their careers. They kind of play the characters that they've kind of uh, that they've kind of been known for. In right, their, and it makes the characters feel more natural and more like real people even even when there's there's sort of a caricature aspect to them they still feel super grounded because yeah. because they are because it's cast so well exactly and, and you know that, that probably being... is a testament to why why wes has certain certain actors and actresses that he will hire often exactly because and he knows how to work with said them. my kind of more specific heel to dial is that in this huge ensemble cast my favorite character and probably performance is Gwyneth Paltrow as Margot Tenenbaum mm-hmm. with Luke Wilson as Richie being right behind her I mm-hmm. love these two characters and I love what Wes Anderson explores with them as individuals and together in this yeah. kind of weird kind of just like almost uncomfortable way yeah it's very um yeah it's a totally uncommon sort of story of of richie and Margot. yeah Uh, and it is and it's an interesting sort of situation to tackle uh my hill for this film is that no one can tell a story with as much darkness yet still make it feel light like Wes Anderson can. 
Mm-hmm. And Royal Tenenbaums is a perfect example of that artistry. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of themes in this film that are really really heavy. Uh, that are that are tough to that are tough to see and tough to sort of grapple with. But there's always this overarching sense of levity in these stories, even though it's such broken people. Uh, a, a vast majority of them are such broken people in in such profoundly different ways because of how their father is. Uh, there, it still feels light and um and and funny at times it's a really interesting balance to strike this film is all about balance mm-hmm. in the fact that if it goes one way too far i think you lose what makes this film so special because this movie is basically all about the regrets and what we live with and failure and kind of this also arrested development and Basically, it's these characters kind of learning to move past where they're stuck at in life. We meet each of these characters and they're all kind of at this really specific crossroads in their life. You know, you have Richie, who's this is the first time he's been back to see his family in it seems like a number of years, which also means it's the first time he's now had to kind of deal with his relationship with Margaret. It's you meet Ben Margot, sorry. You meet Chaz, who's played by Ben Stiller, who's, it sounds like, about a little less than a year since their, his wife and mother of their kids has passed. You mm-hmm. meet Royal, who's at this weird place in the sense that, like, financially he's kind of ruined, and he, he has to pull his con. Angelica Houston, at this point in her uh, role as Ethelene, where... She now is in love with somebody and then Margot in an unhappy marriage. Mm-hmm. Like that's so you meet all these characters right here and it all just kind of goes from there and you see them develop all with this overarching story of a lot of their trauma and issues relies on the fact that their patriarchy in their house disappeared on them and in many ways kind of screwed up yeah yeah the uh the prologue of this film this film is broken up into chapters uh and narrated by alec baldwin Baldwin. very much feels like a book chapter like it does feel chapter to chapter. oh it totally does like to the point like he even like the art style in it is supposed to be each chapter opens up with the chapter of the book with the little illustrations Mm mm-hmm yeah, and at the prologue, uh, we see Chaz and Margot and Richie as as children, and we kind of see sort of where what what their talents are and how they're all kind of geniuses uh, in their own right. Exactly, uh, man. What an they're eclectic, all prodigies. Yeah, yeah, in different ways, and it's there's such an eclectic display of characters, uh, and the the style of cuts mm. that's done is so unique and really adds to adds these little snippets of characterization to them as well and you know the bold captions sort of showing up during uh like b-roll sort of shots where they're showing the the room that the that the child resides in or yeah. you know the activity that they're doing 
it explains what we're looking at in a really tongue-in-cheek sort of way and also serves to like give these characters another foundation. Like you can tell a lot about a character by how their room is designed and you can make it subtle, you can make it exactly the way that it needs to be or you can make it so overly engineered that's like okay, we're in a child's room. Uh and what? this film is is really unique in that it's not a typical room for a typical child. Yeah, Chaz, it's the very for instance, whimsical feel. Yeah, Chaz, for instance, is a business prodigy at the age of 12, and he has, like, a motorized tie rack in his room, and mm-hmm. he's converted his room to, like, a sales floor with ticker tape running and old computer modems and U- UPS drivers coming in and out and, you know, shelves and shelves of all these files. And that's just one example. Uh, and all of this wrapped up in just the warm, pastel, cheerful-looking color scheme that Wes is so known for. It feels almost fantasy-like in his kind of cinematography and set design. Right. And when we talked about the fact that this film has 250 actual sets used to film, all the bedrooms and all the houses real. So it's all yeah. tangible. And I think that's such a genius idea because, so for instance, from my understanding, Gwyneth Paltrow only had about 10 days filming on set because she was, I think, filming something else. So she only had about a 10 day window that they could have her on set. What making that room and making that world so real is as an actress, I feel like she's able to just kind of go in there and she gets to know everything about her character based on the tangibility of like what her childhood bedroom is. It almost feels like Wes Anderson sets this room where then the the actors get to play it. So they get to learn yeah. their oh, characters. That's a great, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it's like it's so wide and so focused in his like style that the actors just get to kind of they know exactly what this character is like. So you get a very specific, you know, with Chaz, you get exactly what you were talking about, where it's just like mm-hmm. he's a very straight laced, business orientated, very neurotic and kind of feels like OCD at a young age. Yeah, and there's so much. Yeah. OK, here's one thing that I thought was so interesting. Where is this film set, Branson? Like what city? Um, I don't know. I don't think it ever says where it's if you set. had to guess. What city do you feel like this is supposed to be kind of an illustration of? Um, maybe uh, a smaller borough of New York. Okay, somewhere exactly. Somewhere in Manhattan. It's kind of that feeling of like it's a New York film, right? And I had that mm. exact same feeling. And I, everyone agrees. And Wes Anderson says this is supposed to be a representation of New York. He never has to say it, but you just have this kind of feeling of New York. It's interesting right. to capture something so specific and something that a lot of us haven't gone to experience but just this feeling of like this is kind of that upper east style of new york where it's the yeah artistic it's the very intellectual movement mm -hmm. cinema cinema as a whole has kind of manufactured this this three-dimensional map almost in our in the collective mind of new york so we like automatically if we see something there are always the the monuments that we can identify 
And then as we get these smaller sort of zoomed in slices, you can still kind of construct, you can almost construct the city block around where we are. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's just, that's just cinema. I, something about, you know, movies being set in New York. It's just interesting. And I, Wes, Wes takes that trope and still is able to sort of mess around with it. Like it feels like a specifically storybook version of New York. There's exactly. a, there's a lot there's a lot of um there's a lot of aspects of literature that keep popping up in this film. The the feel of it is very literary and then like you said with dividing it up into prologues and chapters uh that's very literary as well and then the t- the title cards that show up with each chapter have book text almost it almost seems yeah. like script bylines or something there yeah but it's and describing it's like, the scene this is clearly influenced and anderson has talked about himself that this is a jd salinger kind of novel almost like come to life yes and this movie was inspired by the writings of jd salinger yeah and as someone who you know i'm not the biggest fan of catcher in the rye as i've I think I've stated before. It's I, a, I am I don't also think it's not big on good Catcher book. in the Rye. I Holden Caulfield is maybe one of the most annoying narrators. Agreed. But you definitely see that style kind of carried on over here. And it's also interesting because not only do you see that style, you see the other styles that feel kind of influenced by Anderson. For instance, like, you know, rewatching a bunch of Woody Allen's films recently, it definitely has that upper New York Manhattan kind of mm-hmm. the intellectual movement and surrealist comedy that's kind of associated with Alan and what he's doing in New York in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So you get to kind of see Wes Anderson play in this playground. And not, not only are you talking about that, you're also talking about the music of Greenwich Village, which is very, it's literally throughout this movie. I mean, this soundtrack is amazing. It features mm-hmm. Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, John Lennon and the Beatles, The Clash, The Ramones, Great Velvet Underground, Nico, uh, Vince Giraldi Trio. Uh, It's just, it has a lot of it just like going for it. Elliot Smith's uh, mm -hmm. song in this movie is amazing. It just, it has this certain style and feel to it that it's, it's again, like it could have gone so wrong and I think it could have felt so pretentious, but it never feels disingenuous. It feels right, like this exactly. is just th- what these characters would listen to. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's something that happens a lot with pretentious film. Like it starts to feel not genuine, but this one never feels ungenuine. Exactly. Like it keeps its like, and I think the reason it does is because Anderson keeps its heart like in place, like at the center of this movie. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, this movie is about healing and acceptance. Right. And, and it's also to terms. Yeah. And it's also not so, uh, it's not so navel gazing that it can't laugh at itself. It can't have jokes because there are funny moments in this. Uh, the, and, and in it's fact, a great one of my balance of jokes, it's like, yes. it's not only like uh, the lighthearted the kind of absurdist, the surreal, the slapstick, it also takes it really dark at times. It is a whole plethora mm-hmm. of humor on display. Right. And it's not always present, but 
it is there enough that it breaks up what would otherwise be sort of a difficult movie to watch if there wasn't mm. uh if there wasn't those moments of of comedy if there wasn't those moments of absurdist humor it it would feel it would feel less genuine and less uh or i guess more more pretentious i think what it also does is you have to kind of if you don't have that humor the character of royal feels a lot more cruel yeah where with this humor it kind of lightens it up and it kind of gives you you're not necessarily rooting for royal but it gives you this feeling kind of like what uh danny glover says at the end of this movie when he's talking to royal where he's like no you're not an asshole you're a son of a bitch like it's right. that difference of like you have the charisma to like be this kind of good person in this life, which is why they kind of gravitate back to you. Like you're mm-hmm. not this just full on terrible person. Cause if you right. were you're this not terrible, a, not a stubborn like person, they wouldn't be interested in you. Like they wouldn't have any reason to still connect with you, but clearly mm-hmm. they have some form of connection. Even if it's in some case, like Stiller puts a lot of his character is hating his father. Yeah, like he wouldn't if it was the full on where his father's just the worst in everything and he really just ruined Chaz's life. It doesn't feel like Chaz would give him that kind of day to like because he he would just be able to disconnect the bad and just throw it all away. But this is where it's that weird struggle of him where he's like, I love my father and yet I resent who he is and who he was as a father figure in my life. Mm-hmm. And with with Chaz and Royal. The fact that Royal isn't some tyrant makes their relationship more interesting because on the one hand, you feel for Chaz, you know kind of what what Royal has done to him in order to affect him so profoundly and to change change sort of who he is. But then you also see how Royal has done some good. There, there are some good things that have come out of royal's strange fatherhood yeah so so you're kind of like you just want them to to understand each other and that wouldn't be as satisfying of a of a storyline if royal was just like you said or like the movie says if he was just an asshole yeah and exactly it's all this thing where the three Tenenbaum children, they're all going through different things. Chaz is clearly resentful of his father. Richie has kind of learned to accept who his father is. And then uh But but Richie's Margo, Richie's problem more lies with uh his feelings and not really knowing how to how to get them out of his body. Yeah, but his whole thing with his father definitely seems to be like they seem to have the closest relationship out of all yeah. three of the children. He was like, he there's was, an understanding that, like, okay, this is who my father is, and I right. He was the golden him. child, exactly. And then with Margot, it's just just this. She almost just doesn't know who her father is, so she kind of just accepts mm-hmm. this character in her life isn't her father to the point that like her father doesn't even know her middle name, even though it's yes. the name of his mother. Yes, and which comes and up later. That, where she, 
to that end, Margot is the one adopted child in the Tenenbaum family. Which, uh, as the movie points out, it's <laughs> something that Royal has to point out to people. Like, this isn't my actual child, which yeah, and that, it's hard to tell where that comes from. It's obviously in the movie, it's kind of done for, as a joke, but it also That's one of those out. dark, absurd sort of jokes. But it also, what it's so good about it is having that dark, absurdist joke. It also shows like kind of the trauma that's now been placed on Gwyneth Paltrow's character, where like yeah. that deeply affected her growing up. Yeah, I she had, and even though she's, I would say probably one of the most sad characters, especially at the beginning. At the more in the later half of the movie, I would say Richie sort of takes that spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Margot, even though her character is quite sad and you just want her to to sort of find the light on the other side of this whole thing mm. her her deadpan delivery is really funny i like i said i think what gwyneth paltrow does in this movie is it's by far my favorite performance i've ever seen from her because i'm not mm-hmm. the biggest paltrow fan I, I, think I am also not does... the biggest paltrow fan especially recently with her strange business endeavors selling yeah. snake oil I will admit, obviously, it's hard to deny her talent. And I mean, even in like oh, yeah. some of her more mainstream work, like the MCU, those moments with Pepper and Tony feel very genuine. Mm-hmm. But I think what this movie shocked me with seeing her is one, it feels like a completely different character that we've ever seen Margot, or sorry, Margot's the character that we've ever seen Paltrow play. Mm-hmm. And it's also one who kind of just has this allure and mystery that it kind of feels like Gwyneth Paltrow, you don't associate with like, she kind of feels like the it girl when Paltrow was never really, I felt like to me, the it girl. Like she's always been like kind of the personality, you know, but then this, she's almost plays like what I would say is almost similar to an Angelina Jolie where she's so mysterious. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely strange because I, so often Gwyneth Paltrow is just like the icon of, wow, she's just so she's just so beautiful and i mean i'm not going to deny that but it's not in the same way that you know like the megan fox like megan fox was uh during you know early transformer time or or something like that it's not the same it's not the same sort of uh, labeling i guess yeah and you know i don't think it's great that people label label famous people as those certain things but it is an it is an interesting role. Uh, it's for, for me. Take. She plays the character that I think is so against type to what these other characters are, because a lot of these characters kind of feel like archetypes of the characters played in their past. Gene Hackman feels like kind of a typical Gene Hackman performance, obviously a little bit more comedic than mm-hmm. some of his other performances, but he still has this kind of charisma to him, this ultimate charm kind of this deceitfulness he's kind of the he is kind of like as a danny glover's character describes him he is the son of a bitch in this thing like he is just like he's the ultimate scoundrel it kind of feels like yeah. he's the mischievous scoundrel this whole movie mm-hmm. and I, that what do you, character I is very know, similar mm-hmm. i want to know what you think of uh angelica houston's character which I, is which is ev uh oh shit. evelyn could... oh sorry ethylene ethylene yeah thank you ethylene Ethel is what they call yeah, it. i couldn't remember I... I was like i know so... it sounds like a like a fuel for a lantern or something 
it's so weird because I, when I remember seeing this film in 16, I kind of remember not liking her character. And I mm-hmm. think I've always had a memory of her of kind of being more of the pretentious, uptight mother. She's mm-hmm. not that role in this movie. No. She she is a fairly loving, caring mother who, of course, is full of her eccentricities just as the rest of the Tenenbaum family is. But she's mm-hmm. a lot more nurturing and loving. And what I love about this performance that Ethel, uh, that Angelica Houston brings to it is there's a balance of just something that I don't think emotion is always captured well, where it's her, like, for instance, the scene that I'm referencing is the scene where she thinks Royal is dying. Mm-hmm. And she has such vivid, two strong reactions where it's, she simultaneously like hates this person, but also grieves she's for crushed what at her the, death. Yeah. She's crushed at the prospect of royal no longer being alive yeah it's this balance that i think this movie does so well where it's these relationships are complicated she does have this relationship with royal that means a lot to her and Mm -hmm. the idea of him being not in this world is one that scares her i like a lot of the choices angelica houston does in this movie specifically when you see her get to have some of those lighter moments with danny glover's character as uh, Henry Sherman, who I think yes. provides a lot of the, he provides a lot of the sanity to this world mm-hmm. because he feels like a pretty grounded, normal character yeah. in here. He gets to provide a lot of the laughter of this movie. One of my favorite. Yeah, and beat. often, often at Royal's expense, which is sort of cathartic, especially when he is being more, when he's leaning more towards the a-hole side of his personality mm-hmm. than the SOB side of his personality. It feels exactly. good to for Sherman to put him in his place and to like call him out. Like you're and not Sherman being a also, good father right now. He gets to have a few of those moments as well where it is just him getting to break kind of the tension in this. One of my favorite jokes, mm-hmm. Pratt Falls of this movie is literally when him and Angelica Houston are walking in the construction site and, <laughs> yeah, and he just he falls, falls into off the pit. screen and you That's just see so the next funny. scene. You don't actually see him fall. He's just kind of dusting himself off nonchalantly out of the pit. It's a really funny comedic moment, which again, it's that thing where Wes Anderson is able to just kind of bring a kind of lesser joke. It kind of feels like not lesser, but a very kind of simple kind of, embodied of like what the chaplains used to do where it's a very slapstick mm-hmm. joke compared to some of the whimsical funny witty dialogue he's bringing it's like it's that great balance between the two mm-hmm. there's a lot of it that i like uh i like i said i think what anderson does so well in this film is direct is casting people to play versions of the shelves that they feel he knows how to use them and they are playing to their strengths. Ben Stiller's character feels like a very typical Ben Stiller character, just a little bit more eccentric and a little bit more complicated. But I mean, he's doing yeah. kind of the same Ben Stiller kind of comedic bits that you would expect from a Stiller and kind of sort of, embodying sort of what the, you'd see. He's sort of the craziness uh, factor where, I mean, his whole... I guess his sort of uh, Royal Tenenbaum given flaw is that he is 
Well, I it's sort of caused by that and more more so caused by the death of his wife in a plane crash. But he's so concerned with the safety of his boys and and his own safety. Uh, so later on, when Royal sort of takes Chaz's boys, uh, Ari and Uzi, I think are their names. Yeah. And sort of tears up the town with them. It's all of these, all of these feelings of like, dad, you never did that with me. Also, that's not safe. Also, that's irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's like you, you understand the, the anger and the sort of feelings that he has. It's not just he's being loud because it's funny. It's he's yeah. being loud because he is this this traumatized character, but it's not Which, so it's not so dark that it's you know, I I sort of lost my train of thought there. No, I get what I, you're I saying. You, yeah, I hope you see what What's I'm really interesting about it is again that idea where we talked about a post 9-11 movie where mm -hmm. I think uh, Chaz's character is maybe one of the easier characters to write for audiences like post 9-11 one losing your wife in a plane crash mm -hmm. is just sadly something New Yorkers at that time that was a reality they knew that all too just well like, yeah all of a sudden like a loved one not showing up home like mm -hmm. that was just something that obviously was going to hit closer in right. this kind of thing and also this I think paranoid feeling of it just like this just like fear of just like, I can't let this happen. So I have to take every precaution to keep my children safe. I think that was a real fear coming post 9-11, especially those first few months where it's like, I'm going to do everything to protect my family. Yeah, absolutely. So There's, I think yeah. I think that's why Ben Stiller's character really has a lot of charm and why his character is kind of the one that it feels like there's a very specific like audience love for this movie and i think ben stiller's is definitely one of the ones one because and a thing that we haven't talked about is how amazing the costuming is for this movie because it really brings those characters further to life i mm. think ben stiller just in the way he's designed and just what that character is going through feels very relatable where the other two tenenbaum stories while you connect with them and there's a lot of sweetness in them it's a little bit more eccentric that you don't really get to connect with them quite as much as you would empathize for what Ben Stiller's character is going through in this yeah. movie. Yeah. I with Chaz, I think uh something that's that's brilliant about his costuming is I think uh, it's it's similar to the concept of you know, a lot of professionals will wear the same thing every day because that's one less thing that they have to think about and so they mm -hmm. can devote that bandwidth that would otherwise be used for picking out their clothing, they can devote that to other things. And for Chaz, who is so neurotic about everything, wearing the same sort of tracksuit, I'm assuming that it's not the exact same tracksuit, but he's got multiple sets of the same. Yes. Him wearing that every day is one less thing for him to worry about. Exactly. And that and, and that's a really subtle nod to what his character is. And then another, and it's another also costuming kind of, choice with sorry before you jump Richie. into that one. Oh uh, yeah, go ahead. What with Chaz's outfit, it also kind of shows him stuck in a time and place where he yeah, can't kind yeah, of yeah, move yeah. forward. I think that's another key with understanding why he wears the same outfit. It's a symbolic choice of him not moving forward. 
Yes, and that's really similar. That's exactly what I was going to say about Richie. Because mm-hmm. Richie for most of the hand. movie, Richie is wearing the same thing. He's got sort of the same style going on with his hair and his facial hair. Uh, and he's got that same sweatband that he's had since he was a kid. He's always wearing sort of the tennis blazer. He And he's always wearing the sort of tennis sort of crop shorts and the high-rise socks. He's always wearing that sort of same thing because he's stuck in the past of when he used to be this athletic god kid mm-hmm. who was uh, a star tennis player and um that's that's a really interesting thing i what's something did you notice anything with uh margo's costuming by chance i think margo's costuming one besides just kind of being this iconic look i mm-hmm. think what hers does so well is just even the way her like hair is parted kind of hides a part of herself right like it doesn't feel like she's comfortable ever in like what she wears who she is and i think Mm -hmm. that's a little bit displayed in the sense that like what the type of clothing she chooses to wear where it's a little bit looser because she's not as comfortable in her like own body and sexuality yeah it's something almost like it's almost like repressed in some way but also just like again just like not wanting to show people who she is behind this. So she kind of wears it as this facade almost. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, okay. I, we've just approached an hour or so of recording time. So we should probably start wrapping up fairly soon. Yeah. Let's start like hitting some of the main points of this movie. It feels like Mm -hmm. when we're talking about some of these characters, because we haven't actually touched much on the story of, you know, Royal basically abandoning his kids. They haven't heard from him. And it sounds like about mm. seven years. He comes back all their life, makes up this lie that he's dying and he has six weeks to live to kind of get back in the Tenenbaum family. There's it brings them all back together under the same roof for a first time in what it seems like since they were children. And then it just kind of explores it from there. Uh there's certain moments that I really think are special in this movie. One of them being the when the character of Richie gets to see Margot again. Yeah. Right? When he comes the, out of the airport. When she comes out of the bus. And she comes out of the bus. One, it's the use of music, like I said, is a really important, impeccable choice that Anderson does. And he uses the singer Nico, who is a woman who has this very unique unusual voice that is Mm -hmm. like i said she's part of the she releases this album in the 1960s with the velvet underground which is lou reed's band and she Mm -hmm. has this very kind of like not and velvet underground is also featured in this film they are and like i said what her voice shows is it kind of embodies the whole like unusualness of their situation it's something beautiful it almost at times feels a little inaccessible and it's, I don't, I almost don't know how to describe it. It's the the forbidden love, uh, sort of concept and the, the weirdness of this particular forbidden love is sort of all wrapped up. Her voice is so unique that it just, it feels like you can't have it or it's something very specific, which I think embodies what, Richie is feeling in that moment, seeing someone that he loved. This is a point of the movie that we haven't really talked about. 
and I still don't know how I fully feel about it, is, of course, the Richie and Margot uh, kind of love story in this movie. Yeah. This is one of the interesting parts, and it's one of the reasons I want to, when it, the movie comes out, when I, I want to talk about Licorice Pizza, because that yes. film's been uh, marred with controversy with the fact that Alana Haim's character is 25, Cooper Hoffman's character is 15 in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's that 10-year age difference. This one is taboo, very much similar as right. well. Now, not as uh, maybe noticeable as the Licorice Pizza one, and one that Anderson establishes really early on by kind of reminding the audience that Margot Rob, Sorry, she's... Margot's Margo's character is the adopted, so it's not directly incest yes but obviously it's still and as uh what's it called as gene hackman's character points out it's still like people are going to frown upon it i forgot exactly what his line is he's like no uh, it's not illegal but yeah it's not looked upon well yeah but at the same time he's also like i follow what you follow where you're being led uh, so that's an it's an interesting yeah I wasn't sure how I felt about that uh, I think what my the wife and I watched tr- this my wife and I watched this together and did she like first, this movie I yeah she did okay uh, I was curious the, if she would the uh, I I figure that she would I I I knew that this would be one that she could at least watch with me that wouldn't be like I wouldn't make her watch The Rock with me mm. um but this one. Uh, I think she did enjoy it. And that was one of the aspects of the film that was like tough for us to at first grasp and sort of get behind. But the I more think it's it went intentional on, too. Yeah. And then another aspect of that whole story that was hard for us to grasp onto uh, was how was what happens later on with Richie mm. when he and Raleigh, who is Bill Murray's character and Margot's wife, Margot's husband, I mean, they they sort of hire a PI and they get a whole background report on Margot mm. and uh, stricken by grief and sort of the, the sort of crashing down of all of these different feelings that he has. Richie uh, shaves his head and his face and attempts suicide by mm. by cutting his wrists yeah and i have a lot of thoughts on this suicide scene yes. uh t- touching on i think why the margot richie story ultimately didn't bother me as much is because i think it's really important in kind of understanding this family dynamic which is so eccentric so weird but it also i think it does a really good job in showing that none of these three are really siblings it kind of feels like they're all mm-hmm. individuals who kind of lived in the same household and have these shared experiences, but they don't seem close in the fact of like they have the typical brother sister upbringing. It almost right. at times kind of feels like none of them are. They're all kind of parents and brothers and sisters to each other because they didn't have any kind of like real like family dynamic in their yeah, lives almost, like they're all just like doing their own things and it's almost like they're sponsored by the tenenbaum parents yeah that's a they feel that's like an roommates interesting way, almost right yeah that's an interesting way to put it um oh what i was gonna say 
you, you reminded me of something. I the uh, there's this phrase that says no man is an island, which is basically like saying that you know a person it doesn't do a person well to be alone, but mm. within this family, they are kind of an island, and even within their own sort of relationships outside of being a part of the Tenenbaum family, they're all sort of islanders in their own right. Chaz with his kids, they they have this strange proto trainer trainee sort of sort of relationship and Margot is has made herself extremely distant from her mm-hmm. husband of Raleigh and and Richie uh, his best friend, Eli Cash, who is Owen Wilson's character, who we haven't touched on too much. Yeah, I know. We'll uh, jump in into a second. Yeah. Because I was just thinking, because that brings up a point that you, when you're talking about right there, it's the kind of outsiders looking in, which is embodied yeah. through Eli's character. And actually, for a lot of the film, Royal's character. They have yeah. that one scene together where Eli says, which is Owen Wilson's character, I always wanted to be a Tenenbaum, to which... Uh, royal response yeah me too yeah me too like that's kind of the that's kind of one of those scenes that hits hard because it's the point of this relationship royal doesn't actually Mm. realize like how much this lack of family means to him Mm. and actually how crushing it is to him that he doesn't have a relationship with his family yeah and then on the other side of that eli you know, he sees the Tenenbaums and and how they all used to be these genius kids and uh, how how interesting their life was and how many things were going on. And he has this view of, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. And even as a successful author in his own right, even though he has mixed reviews, mm. uh, his, his the character of Eli Cash is a successful author who gets sort of bad reviews, but his books sell well. Yeah. Uh, he has this perception that the grass is greener on the Tenenbaum side, and uh, and that that makes his sort of drug struggles later on in the film interesting because you wonder if that's a sort of coping mechanism for yeah it feels this sort very... of un, untreated unmetered sort of sort of coveting of of what these kids had and and. He wants In so reality. badly to be a Tenenbaum, like to the point that he's going to Angelica Houston's character and basically seeking her seeking approval. Seeking her approval, yes. That's an it's, interesting little tidbit as well. I think Owen Wilson actually does quite a lot with very little in this movie, where, mm-hmm. one, he provides the comedy in spades in this movie. This character like is pretty hysterical. He has one line in it. That I think is great. Uh, it's uh, I wrote it down. It's well, everyone knows Custer died at Little Bighorn. What this book presupposes is maybe he, he didn't. didn't. <laughs> he has maybe like he the didn't. weirdest like cowboy like look to him. Yeah, just I, like <laughs> sort of the I am wearing these uh, I'm wearing these dusters and these chaps and this hat because. I needed an image and this is what the this is the image that I have decided to it, go it, with. It's kind of the whole thing where each of the Tenenbaums have their own distinct style mm-hmm. that he needs to kind of have his own distinct style and the difference is his style feels so poor, I guess you could say. 
Yeah. Uh, kind of. I, I want to share. I want to share yeah. one of the quotes that that I really enjoyed. Uh, this one's from from Royal himself, and he also provided provides a he lot has of some the jokes funny in this lines film. in this movie. Uh, one of my favorites is, uh, "Oh, you're you're a homeowner. Lovely. I used to be a homeowner too until my son expropriated from me." <laughs> it's like that's such yeah. a strange. That's such a strange concept for your son. He doesn't to... seem to understand like what should be said in situations. It's kind of like the whole thing. Like, right. One he... of my favorite lines he has is the one where he says, uh, I'm very sorry for the loss of your mother. She was a terribly attractive woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that yeah. line's hysterical. And it's totally inappropriate. Attractive woman. It's like, Oh, and even I, in like the first thanks. scene, we get that right away with who Royal's character is. When the kids ask, "Is it their fault that they're getting divorced?" and he's like, "No, I mean, of course, certain sacrifices had to be made." Yeah, <laughs> but no, like it's not your thing. fault. It's like it was just just like the worst thing to say to a child. Yeah, why? Yeah, why even bring that up? <laughs> I think, like I said, it kind of pictures it, and it's one of my favorite just performances Gene Hackman provides because he balances what the movie is intended to, where he has to balance the comedic with the dramatic and the heart of this movie. If Mm -hmm. Royal doesn't work, a lot of this movie doesn't work and you have to buy into his redemption. It's a really important scene is the scene where he and Danny Glover's character, uh, Henry Sherman have this fight in the middle of the kitchen where uh, Hackman's basically throwing not racial slurs, but it's very racially motivated kind of like attacks at mm-hmm. henry sherman's character because and he doesn't des- feel he's like he's a racist wound. yeah yeah it's, it's just not, desperation it like... to wound to wound this other person who is taking quote-unquote taking his wife his, yeah his family basically becoming yeah, what he wants family. and danny glover seems to understand that it's just like this guy's like attacking me but for very different like it's not out of racism it's fully out of just like this guy's kind of almost weird ego trip where he can't allow me to exist in this world. And it eventually accumulates in the scene where Henry Sherman realizes Royal's lying. Uh, Royal has another great line when he gets discovered here where he's just like, this taught me everything. Like I have a new chance at life. And Luke Wilson's character is like, dad, you were never really dying. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many scenes in there and one character that I want to touch on before we kind of get into the third act of this film, which kind of takes the darkest note in this film is a character we haven't mentioned a lot yet is Ralph St. Clair, which is Bill Murray's character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Raleigh St. Clair is an interesting, he doesn't get as much to do in this movie as per se other Bill Murray, Wes Anderson appearances. Right, It's not the life aquatic. Yeah. He's a very supporting character in this movie. He, in more he's ways really, than one. Yeah, he's he's there really to show us who Margot is with and without him. Yeah. Like his purpose is kind of to enhance Margot's story. He has this and, kind and of to just draw like, attention and to draw attention to the sort of trauma that Margot is dealing with. Like he he is trying to help her and she is just not receptive. Or she doesn't want to be helped by him specifically, and I mean, I think that's that's sort of an accurate, as far as I'm aware. And you know, if I'm if I'm incorrect, please do correct me. Uh, mm-hmm. Either you, Ben, or listeners, <laughs> um, 
send me a DM. I'd love to know more about this, but I feel like it's a fairly realistic depiction of what depression can be like sometimes. I think so too. Where uh, even and I think... even when people are offering you help, it's just there's there's just not the motivation there to receive that help. She it's feels easier stuck. To, this yeah, it's her easier character to be of Margo stuck. feels really just like just trapped and she's just kind of accepted this arrested development she's in where mm-hmm. this is her life and this is how she's going to live it. And she really at this point doesn't care uh, with, of course, until Luke Wilson's character comes back and starts confessing some of those feelings. This Luke Wilson scene that we mentioned earlier, the suicide attempt oh, man. is a brutal scene to witness. Yeah. Like it's, uh, it's a it's... heartbreaking scene. It's probably the best acted scene in this movie. Mm-hmm. just for what he goes through the shaving of his head kind of getting to see luke wilson and what we kind of know as the luke wilson look very mm-hmm. much like okay that's what luke wilson looks like to the point where like he's cutting off his uh hair he has the line like tomorrow i die or something mm-hmm. it uh, it was sort of that that scene was sort of similar to uh the the village square scene in jojo rabbit uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's in, a very in stark that just like, look. Y- yeah, it's a very stark. It's, it's this. Uh, I can't find. Where's my? It's where the movie takes. <laughs> this scene is kind of where the movie takes another dimension of what it is. Yeah, yeah. like if this okay. scene doesn't happen, it's a lot more whimsical and humorous. I feel like the film becomes. Yeah, this this, this scene really is where draws it, attention. Like, this yeah. draws attention to the more somber aspects and even even with that it's so it's so beautifully and somberly shot like the lighting is this strong tungsten light uh and the cheery music going on still with uh yeah I, Elliot I Smith's remember. needle in the yeah, hay it was El- yeah needle in the hay uh in the this background whole, yeah it's heartbreaking to watch man the sequence so like i think realistic Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and honestly it just like the whole scene kind of feels like it's done out of a whim because it kind of feels like that's what his suicide attempt is it doesn't feel like there's much contemplation in it it's there he's in this moment of just true pain and the only pain he feels like is an escape and the consequences of that action don't quite have the uh, weight to it and it's like i said it's this really dark scene which is then again juxtaposed by a really comedic scene in the next one where all the families there at the hospital and ben stiller just the has darkest, one of these lines dark comedy about the, the suicide note yeah where he's just like <laughs> he's like can, can we read the suicide note no no i don't can we paraphrase so. it yeah can, can you, you paraphrase, can it you paraphrase your suicide note <laughs> yeah. It's like, whoa. like, is it dark? <laughs> Wilson's like, of course it's dark. It's a suicide. It's suicide. <laughs> yeah, I that's one of those that's one of those sort of absurd jokes where, you know, not a lot of people would joke about it, but in this in the moment where in the moment it feels appropriate it because feels it's real, all right? of these it's yeah, it's it feels real and it feels appropriate because it's all these characters that don't aren't fully able to have these these solid human connections for one reason or another so it really does feel like 
uh, it was earned, and it adds, and because because Richie survives this, it the levity of this whole scene feels less. You don't feel as uncomfortable laughing with them. Yeah. It's sort of a relief. Uh, it's it's sort of that sigh of relief, like it's I'm that so moment glad that breaks okay. the tension. Yeah, yeah, and and, and it's nice because because uh, Richie is almost sort of. L- not laughing along with them, but he's contributing to the sort of absurd funniness of the whole of that whole yeah, scene. Yeah, and this is the very critical point because this is then the next scene where Richie leaves the uh, hospital and he meets up with Margot's character in his uh, tent in his room, and this is where they kind of just confess, you know, their love for each other. And Mar- uh, Margot's character ends it basically by saying, "We can never be together." Mm-hmm. Like this love will always have to be secret, which is another very somber note, which then gives it the precedent to then have the royal Tenenbaum scene with his son, where he's kind of giving him the advice, uh, which then kind of leads to the redemption, it feels like, of royal, right? Because he gets to have the scene where, one, he panics when he thinks his son's dead, mm-hmm. rushes to the hospital, basically willing to break into the hospital, which then leads to this great side performance from the... And- and uh, and something that he's what's name? done it... right before uh, breaking into the hospital, he and his co-conspirator and kind of lying to the family. Oh, I can't remember what is his it name Pagoda? is. It's Pagoda. Yeah, Pagoda. Pagoda. He has this uh, great they, scene where he just they, like points it, and he's like, that's Richie. <laughs> it's Richie yeah. climbing into the bus. <laughs> there he is. Um, but they, oh, where before he stabbed, that whole scene, sorry, where they, he they became... Yes. <laughs> um, I swear if you stab me, Again, this is the last time you'll ever stab me. <laughs> the uh, right before the whole um, suicide scene, they they've become uh, they've become doormen for for like ele- or like elevator operators to and and Royal is doing it to seat. sort of prove that he is good for something. Like he is mm. he is working and sort of trying to prove in his own strange way that like. There is something that he's trying to do for them. Yeah. Uh, and it's so, it's because it's all stems from this moment where it's kind of Gene Hackman and Alec Baldwin teaming up where it's these six days have been the best days of my life, which and Alec mm-hmm. Baldwin reveals like in the monologue going on where he's like, mm-hmm. and at this moment, Royal actually realized that is true. Yeah, because he, he says he it as, a lie. as he said it. Yeah, he realized as he said it it's, that it was true. It's a it's a form of manipulation which he then realizes he's manipulating himself to be right. lying about this condition. Which, like I said, this whole scene kind of gets him to have this redemption moment under Richie's eye, which then lets him have this kind of heartfelt conversation uh, with mm-hmm. Margot's character, where they're all surrounded at this ice cream parlor with fathers and daughters having ice cream, and he gets to have these lines and. There's just this understanding of like Margo's like you were never my father because you didn't treat me like your daughter at any point in right. your life. Like you don't even know my middle name and it's your literal mother's name. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this understanding where he's like, Okay, yeah, I've been kind of a terrible father. <laughs> like right. why it's why this why weird would you consider me a father figure? It's this weird moment where he is trying to do something for her and even then it's like it's not what you're doing while well, your head's in the right place. It's not nearly enough to repair this damage. Yeah. And which is something his whole arc in that scene is understanding he can never repair that damage. 
It's just he can now be there and try. Like, that's that moment where he realizes, like, she realizes he actually cares about me is that moment where it's like, he's trying. Even if he's failed my entire life, at this moment, he cares about me and is trying trying to make the difference, which kind of allows her to open up with him. Which then comes, of course, the redemption under Chaz's eyes because Chaz is is really the it's the yin and yang the whole time with Royal, where Mm -hmm. Royal and Chaz are basically like they don't see eye to eye. And Chaz dislikes his father vehemently, uh, leading to the scene, of course, where the wedding happens at Henry Sherman's uh, and Ethel's this crazy car crash happens with owen wilson's character where he's just like eli. drugged out eli out of his mind drugged Here out of I his come. mind yeah just crashes in kills the dog in a very darkly comedic moment almost almost just like, almost hits almost hits yeah, chaz's hits the kids, kids which, which results in a royal very funny chase them. scene yeah yes. royal saves them yes royal and saves the kids and it also results in a very funny chase one scene, of the funniest uh, chase scenes between, in the movie where they throw the Chaz pastor eli. where they throw the, <laughs> the, the, the priest the priest just down bumping down the stairs <laughs> and Chaz like grabs grabs eli and like pushes him very slowly over a wall and he just lands on the other side of the wall yeah and then that's finally the moment where eli realizes i need help with this addiction that i have yeah, um, and it's also I, this moment where when not to, not to Royal rush us saves, along, mm-hmm. not to rush us along. Let's try to finish uh, pretty quickly here. Yeah, this is my last. We're point approaching. Of the movie, oh, yeah, really. we're approaching nine p.m. Ooh, we are getting Woo-hoo. late. This is my last kind of point of the movie because it kind of mm-hmm. feels like the last scene in this movie is where Royal and Chaz have their reconciliation, and it's yes. one of the sweetest lines in the movies where it's, mm-hmm. "I've had a rough year, Dad." Like it's kind of all the weight of just like. He's lost yeah. his wife, and you can he's hear now, his he's voice now a quavering and breaking. Yeah, and Royal understands and comforts his son for the first time, really, at what it feels like their life, mm-hmm. where it's he's coming to him as a father, and he's now comforting him as a father. Yeah, and and Royal and Royal really does earn his redemption, and then uh, later when he on, passes, it's a sweet yes. moment with these characters where they get to look back on him, fonder. And as a family, rather than what they were, where it was a bunch of individuals, yeah, where they were this kind of bastard father. Yes, and uh, there's a <laughs> my final thought on on the film the the detail of Chaz being the one in the ambulance when his father dies. And yes, like how he was oh. with him when his father dies is is a really nice bittersweet sort of apotheosis of their of of Royal's arc with Chaz specifically. And Chaz Um, gets this moment where it's comedic and uh, showing the character moving forward where while they're at the funeral, he is wearing a black Adidas sweatpants suit to like show honor, which obviously you wear black at a funeral. So that's the joke right there, which is kind of another absurdist, like weird thing. Vaguely, vaguely apropos. But it's also that moment where we see Chaz is able to kind of move on because the rest of the characters are dressed in their usual attires. Yes. So for him to be dressed in black is not only him respecting his father, but him also on the branching out. Yeah. I I'll say what my favorite bit was, and then we can go into our great debate. Mm -hmm. Um, I really want what Royal had on his tombstone on my tombstone. (laughs) It says, died tragically rescuing his family from the wreckage of a destroyed sinking battleship. 
Now, I didn't realize how how poignant that was until just just reading it before I said it out loud. But in a way, the Tenenbaum family was kind of a sinking ship. Yeah, it was. They bit. were no longer kind of feeling like a family, and this is them reconciliating. Yeah, and and in a strange way, Royal really did save his family uh, because he, in the end, he, saved he the actually Tenenbaum started name, trying. Kind of, right? Yes, in the end, while he was lying, you know, he was he was just being classic Royal, but the the deeper he got into the lie, and then later on, he actually started giving. Yeah. <laughs> You yeah, know. exactly. Uh, and so while a very funny line on the surface, there's also a nice little bonus meaning in there. And I don't know to what degree that was planned, but I I love it and I appreciate that detail all the same. Yeah, there's a lot. Like I said, we didn't touch on this movie. The fact that there's yeah. hints that Margo it's, it's so might be story dense. Yeah, there's like hints that Margo might be bisexual uh, in it. There's a few oh, other the whole like, scene the whole scene, the whole scene set with, uh, to Judy is a punk yeah, by the Ramones. Like there's, oh, there's a ton that scene going is on really funny. It's that really, really good. There, that's one of my favorite scenes. It's like that joke. Me as uh, well. I, I think my favorite joke in this movie is the one I said earlier, where it's the scene where uh, Danny Glover's character takes the Pat Prattfall. I think yes. that scene's just. I, I think Danny Glover kills it in this movie. I think he delivers a lot of the heart, as does Alec Baldwin, who doesn't get talked about mm-hmm. as much because he's the narrator. I think he brings a lot to this movie. But yep. ultimately, the scene that, like, if I'm saying, like, this is my favorite scene of this movie, it is actually the scene uh, where Ben Stiller and Gene Hackman have their reconciliation at the end of the movie. I think it's the sweetest and the one with the most heart, uh, just because also Royals offer, like, bringing them the dock. Like kind of yeah. like oh yeah that was sweet. It's like too. a really sweet moment where he's like, okay, this guy actually cares about my kids mm-hmm. and wants their best interests. And immediately, with that said, immediately takes a big step to fix a mistake. Exactly. And with that all said, Royal Tenenbaums, really great movie. Don't remember it being quite as good when I was younger. So the fact that I got to see this movie again and rewatch it with obviously more mature eyes, mm-hmm. I really had fun with. Uh, this is a movie that benefits you thinking about it after the fact, too. This is a movie where I've always criticized the G, PG, PG-13 R rating mm-hmm. because this movie is rated R. It doesn't hit until you're a little bit older, till you're a little right. bit more educated, till you've had a little bit more life experience and things. Yeah. I'm not saying that you can't be like 16 and enjoy this movie. But I think this one is one of those ones that benefits more, where even if it is you're allowed to see this movie technically in theaters at 17, I think this movie's a little bit more meaningful the older you get. Yeah, with a critical eye, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and with so, that, that's that's our thoughts on the Royal Tenenbaums. Really well done movie and well-deservingly puts Wes Anderson on the map. Yes. And uh, I think this it's about time. This is his Pulp Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> this is his Pulp Fiction. I think, uh, I think it's about time. For our classic, our classic here. The Great Debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Great Debate. I am your host, Ben Friedman, and standing in this corner at 6'1", 175 pounds, glasses and all, Branson Bindmedia. Glasses and all. Punch him right off my face. Delicato. And Here I am. Corner, 
in his bedroom floor. Making waves and making waveforms. <laughs> standing at six feet, exactly weighing about 50 more pounds than he would wish to weigh at this moment. <laughs> then the Beniverse Friedman. How far away are you from the mic? Uh, maybe <laughs> less than a foot. Okay, you got really oh, quiet for some reason. Oh, I don't I know really? why. That's I don't know. At that's least like the in first time I've ever had that. Yeah, at least on my end. It's uh, maybe <laughs> maybe it auto- three. Maybe it automatically cut your volume. In any maybe. case, uh, me first. Me Welcome first. Me first. Bait. Yeah, you go first. Okay, I'm pretty proud of this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this movie has quite the ensemble cast, as we discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a few of them, Wes Anderson regulars, as we also yes. discussed. Uh, and then each of the cast members also has a, a large number of roles under each of their respective belts. Mm-hmm. So I want to know, Ben, what other role of any cast member would be the most interesting slash strangest one to swap in this movie? So, for example, uh, instead of Gene Hackman portraying Real Tenenbaum in this movie, Gene Hackman plays another role from a different movie that he was in. Yeah, I get that's the sort question. of the structure. Okay. I think I don't know why this was my first answer, but I'm sticking with it. I'm choosing Ben Stiller, and I recast him as the character Derek Zoolander. Derek <laughs> Zoolander Tenenbaum, I guess is what that's we're going to call him in this movie. <laughs> and it's weird because it fits kind of in this weird way. They're each three prodigies. And in the Mm. movie Zoolander, directed by Ben Stiller, we are supposed to believe he is the world's greatest model. Like, (laughs) he's famous for his blue Blue steel, steel. all of that thing. Uh, So you get to have this other kind of prodigy in New York in 2001. Weirdly enough, another film that Zoolander is the first comedy that comes out post 9-11 on September, I believe, 28, 2001. Mm Mm-hmm. Which so you get that uh, connection, but I think what it is is one. There's a comedic sensibility that works between these two movies. Now Ben Stiller's Zoolander is obviously more broadly comedic, but I yeah, think much same, different like, kind of comedy. Yeah, but I think they can translate well enough, and you get to see a character that is already eccentric by nature in Derek right. Zoolander. You kind of get to transform him into this royal role of royal Tenenbaums. Get to see kind of the more prodigy side of Derek Zoolander. Again, another character in this film who has father issues with his father, I believe played by John Voight in Zoolander. I think there's enough crossover that you would kind of get to see it. And I think would fit really well. And I think the broad comedic would add a lot to this movie, not saying it'd be a better movie, but I think it would translate into a way that it still fits the Royal Tenenbaum structure and what this mm. film's message is supposed to be while Instead also of, respecting. Uh, yeah. But while yeah. also respecting what uh, Ben Stiller Zoolander is, they both mm-hmm. can kind of coexist in this New York meta, just absurdist world. Instead of breeding uh, Dalmatian mice, he breeds ants. Yeah. What is this? Ants. A breeding room for ants. for ants. All right. I've got a, I've got an, interesting answer that i think might actually one-up yours for most interesting swap okay uh, wait can owen i guess wilson. which characters okay i was gonna say owen wilson can i guess the character owen wilson uh can i guess the character owen wilson is yes i'm gonna say um lightning mcqueen 
<laughs> You're absolutely right. Swap Owen Wilson as Eli Cash with Owen Wilson as Lightning. The car McQueen. crash scene would be like, oh my, that's times exactly funnier. that's exactly what I was thinking. I just like the car crash scene by itself would would be extremely absurd. It'd be so uh, funny, but so. It's so funny. And then also just the just the visual of all the rest of the characters being like semi-grounded uh like normal people and then Owen Wilson's just a race car. Yeah. I like uh, it. who's I addicted like the... to ketamine. Yeah. It's like I like the idea. It shows yeah. the real side of Lightning McQueen, like what the real <laughs> celebrities go through on a daily basis and what fame can do <laughs> yeah. to take yeah, into exactly. take on. Uh Here's my question for you. Lightning McQuetamine. In this film, we get to see characters or actors who have uh, had a relationship with Wes Anderson in his mm. film. The Wilson brothers, Murray, I believe Alec Baldwin's appeared. Uh, maybe a few others that I'm forgetting. But anyway, you get to see these character actors who get to appear. I want you to cast three actors, actors or actresses, that haven't been in a Wes Anderson movie that you can think of put them in it kind of in the lead or supporting like roles what three actors would you like to see play in the world of a Wes Anderson movie hmm one that immediately came to mind is one that would fit in well I think is William H. Macy okay now I don't think I would want him to play the same sort of character as he does in Fargo but I could see him I could see him starting out as more of a weaselly character and then sort of uh sort of calming down as the movie goes on. Mm. Um I almost like uh almost like how Kevin Spacey's character was in Baby Driver. Mm. Where it's sort of like you don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. It's whatever's kind of benefiting him. It's mm. almost like an anti hero. But in a much more, in a much less superhero, supervillain kind of way. Um, another actor that I think might work, or actress. Uh, I'll let I'll let you share a few, and then I'll I'll share some more. Uh, I'll list off one, and then you can kind of jump. Okay. In I had as my number one was Tom Hiddleston. That'd be interesting. I think I think the relationship that Owen Wilson and him already have is kind of a natural fit. And I think they there's do something have a, so they're great together in Loki. And they're also in Woody Allen's film Midnight in Paris together. Oh. So I think they have a natural relationship that would translate on screen. And I think there's kind of like this almost eccentric, eccentric look with Hiddleston's character that I think would translate pretty well over to it. And I think he has fun with that kind of whimsical dialogue where he gets to be the witty character. Mm-hmm. So that's one of my pitches. That's pretty good. Um, I have the other I two. So I was trying to think of an actress. Uh, one that I thought of was Ellie Fanning. Okay. I'm thinking of her uh, from We Bought a Zoo. And I, she's a lot older now, but I think that she has the sort of look that that matches Wes Anderson, and she's very sweet. She I, she has the capacity to play very sweet characters, 
So I could see that fitting in fairly well. Um, I can almost see her like a babysitter kind of character or like a nanny mm-hmm. or so like a, a younger nanny. Okay. Of, of I have a kids. I have a woman on my list, so I'll say mine. I had Dakota Johnson on my okay. list from 50 shades. Of course, uh, she's done peanut butter Falcon since she's done uh, a few horror films. She's in one of my favorite films this year, which is our friend. I think she has that kind of what, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow has in this movie. I think I think if you ever watch an interview with Dakota Johnson or you see her acting style, it's very natural, it's very playful, and mm-hmm. it's very absurdist. Like she totally likes playing with the weird, uncomfortable humor. Kind of like what an Audrey Plaza does, but in a little bit more of a grounded way than Audrey Plaza, where Audrey Plaza at times kind of feels like she's playing a character. This mm-hmm. feels like just a natural person who just kind of speaks their mind so i kind of like the idea of what dakota johnson would do with a wes anderson script and i think there's just like a look that wes anderson kind of gravitates to and i kind of think Mm -hmm. she kind of fits that like mold of like what a wes anderson would look like that's pretty good um my last one this one's a little bit interesting uh and this is going straight from like an absurdist comedy sort of standpoint hannibal burris Mm, okay, I like that. I first, actually. Thought, I first thought of Tim Robinson from I Think You Should Leave on Netflix, yeah. which is hilarious. And if you're a fan of absurdist comedy, you should definitely watch it. And then I was like, no. And then I thought of Eric Andre. And then I was like, no. And then I was like, Campbell Burris. I think that's a good. I think that's I like a good that stopping point where he's not so crazy absurd, but he still has those comedic sensibilities, and he's insanely funny. Uh, I can see him being a really good comedic relief sort of character, maybe like a best friend. Um, okay, and, you I know, like I, that. He's we've seen him in in Marvel movies playing minor minor roles, um, and then of course, I, his whole repertoire from being on the Eric Andre show is amazing. He can play the straight man and also the absurd backbone of the comedy that's going on. Um, so I, I think he's adaptable. I like that. I like that a lot. I had, so obviously writing the question, I had a few names that just popped into my mind and I had to eliminate it down to who I thought the third would be, but I will mention my honorable mentions just since I did write them down. Giancarlo Esposito, who from Breaking Bad and The Mandalorian, I think he'd be great. I think Andrew Garfield could have fun in that role. I think Robert Pattinson kind of has that mold. I know, no, I'm just Andrew kidding. I know you mean Andrew Garfield. Robert Pattinson could have some fun in that role, I think. Yeah. I had Adam Driver on there because Ooh, I think that's such like he'd be a good he's, fit. He's such an eccentric like he would almost be a weird fit because of just like how much of a screen presence he has that is so He's like the puzzle piece style. that you would that doesn't look right, but then as soon as you put it on the board, you're like that's yeah like that's he's exactly such a the right piece he's so big like he's so physically imposing like being such a tall mm-hmm. guy like it almost just like doesn't seem like a fit but i think it's with Kristen stewart almost made it on this list mm-hmm. and then the one that barely missed out but i like the third one so much more i had woody harrelson as like the guy who was like right at the fourth spot where i'm like i like the idea of woody harrelson that would it. fit ultimately Though, if there was one actor, I'm like, that would be, like, something to see. It'd be Nicolas Cage. 
Nicholas Cage in a Wes Anderson movie. I can't imagine the type of fun that Wes Anderson would be able to deliver with a character actor like Nicolas Cage. If he could like something. fully like rein him in and be like, this is the movie I want. This is the character. And they have like an idea that they both like and are enthusiastic about. I think Nicolas Cage could kill a Wes Anderson role. I think there's something, something so develop. like interesting about the way he directs and the way uh, Cage acts. That it's kind of like this weird match in heaven of the yin and the yang meeting in something that's so unique that only Nicolas Cage could do under the direction of a Wes Anderson. I think yeah. it's just two like guys who are very known for their style coming together. And I think that'd be such an interesting blend of comedy and craziness that I, and eccentricity that I'd love to see. For sure. All right. And with that, uh, that will do it for this, this episode. Yep. Uh, Make sure Royal to like, Tenenbaum. comment, subscribe, all that stuff. Follow us on our podcast. Follow me on the Beniverse. Uh, make sure to do all that great stuff. Check back next week. We're talking Blazing Saddles for a one-year Woo-hoo! anniversary. I'm excited make sure for to that. Like, I just uh, peeked the heck out of my waveform yes. because I'm so excited to talk about Blazing Saddles. We'll be hopefully back in person. Make sure to yes. follow us on Fine Media on Instagram and the Beniverse on Twitter and links as always are in the description down below. Yep. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, I'm Ben. I'm Bran. This has been Ben and Bran. See you. See you. Thank you all for listening. Peace out. Take care. Bye.